welcome back. Um, this is the final class of Public Problems 101, a January review of the evidence. It's hard to believe that all of January has now snuck past, but thanks again for coming out tonight. Um, this will be the last Wednesday event, but there's going to be a few other events um, that I'd like to tell you about throughout the course of the evening. So we'll start with uh, sort of some winding down of the class um, from the five weeks. So the first thing I'd like to do is just say thank you. Um, this has been a lot of fun sighting and short course to develop. I've begun incorporating some of the Google tools, Google Hangout and Google Classroom into my courses at Texas A&M, but hadn't tried any pieces that would allow you to do it publicly or thought about how to interact it with video. But I had started the Public Problems podcast and was thinking about different ways to um, thinking about different ways to, to do the podcast and think of different ways of delivering conversations um, that were free and freely accessible to people. And using the tools in the in the Texas A&M setting and having the Public Problems podcast sort of developing and thinking through that is what led to this course. I thought it'd be a fun first way to try to merge these online tools and the public problem, the content from the public problems podcast. And, I, and it's been a lot of fun. I think it's been successful. There's different things I, that I'll do differently um, the next time. Um, but it's been fun to stumble across the Facebook live, which I was not aware for when I first started this course. It's been a real um, new tool to figure out that's led to a few other things that have been really um, So again, thank you. Thank you for following along. Thank you for being patient with me while I work through these different tools. Thanks for your questions. It was really neat to, on the first round of this, have people asking questions and engaging live uh, with me and with the guests throughout this course. So thanks for that. Um, I'll be taking questions throughout this presentation and throughout the final class tonight. So feel free to just add questions to the Facebook live discussion at any point. <clears throat> so before we move on to talking about some of the topics tonight, administration, risk management, and artificial intelligence, I'd like to highlight a few things coming down the pipe from the public problems platform, since this will be the last time that I'll get to talk with you through the public problems course. So you may have seen floating around on Facebook, the, there's a new event that uh, I'm partnering with the Public Management Research Association. And I'll be co-hosting with one of, the, one of our guests here on the podcast, Nathan Favero. He and I will be co-hosting a new Facebook Live series for the Public Management Research Association, which we're calling Discussions on Management and Governance. And Nathan and I will be chatting with scholars whose work is appearing in the new PMRA journal, which is called Perspectives on Public Management and Governance. And that's actually coming up really quick. The first event is this Friday, February 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern. Nathan and I are gonna do an, introduc an introduction to the series. <coughs> Excuse me. And the next two events will be actual interviews with scholars starting next Monday at 12 p.m. Eastern and 4 p.m. Eastern. And those will be broadcast from the PMRA Facebook page, Public Problems Facebook page as well. And these will run through about March. The other thing to know um, is that season two of the Public Problems podcast is forthcoming in February. We're shooting for a February 15th tentative release date. Um, the format, the guests, the discussions are all going to be a little bit different from season one keeping it kind of fresh and interesting, different types of content. So hope you'll enjoy those interviews. Um, most of season two is already recorded. We're putting the final touches on a few of the episodes and we've already started thinking about what we might do for season three. So it's uh, been kind of fun to think through what kind of themes we might come up for that season as well. Each season is gonna to continue to have a slightly different theme different types of guests and different style of conversation so that for different structures, other people might find more or less appealing. We're also likely to do some Facebook live conversations around season two as follow-ups to the initial discussions as well. So keep an eye out for those. 
We're going to do this again. Um, we're going to take some time, uh, give the public problems team and I some time to think about how to structure this course even better. Um, we'll do it in July. There will be new topics, new discussions, new guests. Um, we'll be using some of the same tools, but we'll probably mix up some of the ways in which we use them as well. Registration will be in May for that, and we'll be updating on that on the Facebook page, on the podcast, and in the Facebook Live discussions. Um, and we're thinking through a couple of other Facebook Live uses that might be fun. So if you have ideas of ways to encourage discussions using the Facebook Live, feel free to reach out, of, uh, reach out to us on our Facebook page um, or for the students to send some ideas in the Google Classroom as well. Okay, one thing I want to mention for the first time publicly and first time on the public problems platform is that we do have a functioning website now. It's under my, uh, it's my name, justinbullock.org. And um, we've got that website set up to give you some basic updates on what we're doing with the public problems platform. Um, we've also gotten that set up now that if you would like to donate or subscribe to the public problems platform, you can just go to justinbullock.org slash subscribe. There's a button there from the homepage. You have two choices um, for supporting this platform financially. If you would like to, there's a, a subscribe um, button. Actually, we just did away with that subscribe button because it was a little clunky. So there's just now a donate button. It also works on mobile devices. It allows you to make any donation and also allows you to make that donation a monthly reoccurring payment um, if you'd like to subscribe that way. So you can choose any way that you might uh, because um, I put remain free and publicly available, um, but any help on the, covering the cost of the platform and having resources to devote more time towards it is very much appreciated. Okay, all the front matter out of the way. What I'd like to do is a brief recap of what we've covered in this class and then shift to the topics from tonight. So just in the order in which they played out, week one, I laid out a or attempted to lay out a basic sketch for how I view public problems. And what I was trying to convey in week one was that we should approach these problems ethically, logically, and with the best of uh, evidence available. And additionally, I suggested that one important ethical consideration that I think is uh, broad and most people could logically get through and subscribe to is and agree on is that minimizing human suffering and protecting basic human rights, even though the lists might vary across um, how people think about these, but the idea of minimizing human suffering as an, as an ethical goal uh, and trying to protect basic human rights and introduced you to the course. The next week I chatted with David Bradford about medical canvas. We had a nice um, in-person conversation, the only one that we did for this course. Um, we discussed the science behind the use of cannabis for medicinal purposes, how this research, uh, how his research actually shows um, that the legalization of medical cannabis saves taxpayers a lot of money through uh, money that's saved through Medicaid, uh, Medicare, and then has some working papers on the amount of lives that it would save as well as people would shift away from opioids. And you see there's evidence that opioid uh, overdeaths go down. Um, in the states where medical cannabis is legalized. And we also talked about drug regulation and different administrative tools for thinking about drug policies. From there, we chatted, uh, I chatted with Greg Galls, um, and we talked about some of the most prevalent international affairs frameworks. Uh, one of the things that we talked a good bit about was the differences between liberalism and realism, which was uh, recapping that with Greg was very informative uh, for me for that. Um, we also chatted about the U.S.'s role on the global arena, um, particularly since post-World War II and how it's been changing over time and how it's changing now. We also talked a little bit about the current state of relationships between the U.S. and several other actors. We also uh, moved a little bit from the academic realm and talked about how these academic frameworks like liberalism and realism, uh, while useful, make it hard to predict uh, what's coming next. And so we talked about some of the limits of these academic frameworks and um, also talked a little bit about democracies. And we had a nice back and forth about whether democracies are inherently more peaceful than other forms of govern uh, governance, which was a lot of fun. 
Last week, and we had a bonus chat. We ended up with two separate chats last week. The first was with Nathan Favero on evidence, a big theme of this course. And um, we talked about the different types of evidence to make decisions about uh, public policy. So we talked about uh, data that is case studies um, and data that is interviews and data that is uh, quanti uh, more quantitative and more systematically quantitative and how that's used in public policy research. We also covered a brief overview of some of the more basic important stats uh, concepts like mean, median, variance, uh, correlations, and regressions. And we're actually gonna come back to the concept of regressions tonight when we think about decision-making. Nathan and I also talked about some of the concepts, uh, some concepts like generalizability and how you really are looking for an accumulation of studies for to make good policy decisions on and how you might do that. Um, the second talk uh, for week four and the final before this one was the first time we'd had two guests um, and the guests that night were Ann Bowman and Rob Greer. We talked about cities and local government. We talked about the importance of the political structure of local governments and how that affects outcomes and the administration of those uh, local governments. We talked about how cities and local governments are funded um, and some current challenges that cities are facing both from uh, growth and from a, a funding perspective as well, and how cities can think uh, more intelligently about how to grow, how, how to grow over time. And I think uh, all of this brings us to tonight. Um, I'd like to zoom out a little bit and talk about public problems broadly. So I'm going to refer a little bit back to week one um, and some of the conversations about evidence last week and get us walk us through, uh, walk you all through some of my thoughts about administration broadly and decision-making and what that, uh, what that looks like, what that means for situations where there are risk um, and how artificial intelligence might help us make better decisions uh, on certain types of decisions. So then I'm gonna get some water and continue on. Also, feel free to uh, ask questions throughout. I'll um, be kind of talking through, but I'll keep an eye on to see if questions come through. If I say something that it's hard to follow or that isn't making a lot of sense, someone just chime in and stop me, ask me to clarify something, and we'll work on uh, walking through this. So, as I mentioned in week one and again today, um, I tried to lay out in week one the importance of crafting ethical solutions to public problems um, and doing it in an evidence-based, logical way. And we talk about some ethical aims or goals um, in week one and that I was referencing earlier, which is things like trying to find ways to minimize um, human suffering, for example, as a goal. And we talked a lot about um, aims and goals that should drive public policy. And so when I say that, I'm, uh, what I'm talking about is trying to work towards some, um, some end goal, right? And we talk a lot, when we talk about economics, um, for example, we often talk about trying to maximize efficiency as a goal we talk about in public policy, all right? Or trying to maximize equity, all right? Those are aims or goals of policies. They can be more specific than that. It can be um, providing insurance or providing job training or providing some type of service at some uh, level. But think of uh, the first piece of this as goals and what types of goals do we want society to be pursuing? What are good goals for society? And this is really the what question in my mind. So what is it that we are trying to accomplish? Okay, but this leaves open the question of the how. How do we achieve those goals and aims? Whatever we pick as a society, right? And this, the how, the way in which that we're going to achieve these goals, the tools, the implementation, um, I'm going to broadly call administration, all right? So we have the what, what are our aims and goals, and the how. And the how to do things, how to implement 
the goals and implement the aims is is what I'm going to call administration. All right. Okay. So these are the the two concepts that I want you to keep in mind as we as we start this conversation. Uh, excuse me. The what? What are our aims and goals? And the how? The administration of how we're going to achieve those aims and goals. And this provides the basic two pieces of how we think about public problems, what it is that we want to achieve and how we want to get there. Okay. Now, of course, the distinctions aren't that neat. They aren't clean and it's not like they don't affect one another. The what we're trying to accomplish certainly influences the different tools for the how. All right. <clears throat> and so, but I think these are useful ways to think about kind of organizing thoughts about breaking down big public problems. So since we've done a little bit uh, in the first lecture, I talked about ways to think about aims and goals and ethical structures. Tonight, I want to talk a little bit more about the administration piece, um, which is the piece my formal trainings in and my own background. And so let's let's talk a little bit about the how. All right. So again, the how is what I'm calling administration. Um, and so how do we get the what implemented? And at the core of administration, at the core of the how, is um, is decision making. And people uh, people have talked about this um, in the field. There's a famous, her, famous Herbert Simon quote about um, decision making being the heart of administration. Um, and so it's this idea that decisions have to be made. And so thinking through how to make this the essence, the very uh, core of the how. It's making decisions about how to go from one state to another state, going from one area, one place to a goal you're trying to achieve. And decision-making and administration can be done at the individual level. It can be done at the organizational level. And it can be done at the system level. So when we're talking about decisions, we're not just talking about how individuals make decisions, but a lot of the, the, the way in which we think about decisions and how we're maximizing something, there's going to be different things that we're trying to maximize and different goals we're going towards. And they're going to have different variables, different tools, that we can use to, to make a decision to get to an outcome. But the process behind that is going to be at, at some core level similar across the individual, the organization, and the system. All right. And so in, um, the idea is that it isn't that these things can be applied fairly broadly. I'm trying to talk about them as broadly as possible. So decision making is one of the subsets or one of the core pieces of administration um, that I've done some work in. My dissertation, for example, was on errors, and in particular, errors made by major U.S. federal programs. Um, I looked at the unemployment insurance program and Medicare and a few others, and the errors that I looked at were improper payments, right? And I picked improper payments mostly because there was something, it was something that was relatively by that time easy to measure. And so in my work, when I'm talking about some of the broad findings, um, I'm talking specifically about one type of error, which is improper payments, but I think it can be applied broadly um, to trying to minimize errors and make better decisions as a byproduct within organizations and within systems. And so anyways, I was curious as to how these errors are generated. They vary a lot by program. Um, <clears throat> there, there are some that are on a high priority list. And I wanted to understand how, where did these come from? Was it, was it um, decision makers at the lower levels, the, the caseworkers, the people delivering services kind of on the ground? Is it, are, is it things that they're not doing correctly? Um, or is it, more systematic than that? Is it the way in which data is transferred from one person to another, for example? And I was able to um, mostly just look at the biggest pieces of these from the, the work that, that I've done and some with uh, co-authors, including uh, Rob Greer 
um, who was uh, with us last week. But one of the things that I noticed about the errors, and then by errors, again, I mean improper payments, is that they vary a lot more across programs than they do within a program over time. All right. And so um, Medicare fee for service had a lot more errors than another program. And over time, the amount of errors within the Medicare fee for service changed on the margins um, some by sometimes small percentage points. So there were like managerial and structural things that could be altered or changed that um, allowed for lower improper payments. But in general, the big differences across the amount of improper payments and errors as I was thinking about them um, was across programs, which suggested to me that these were sort of built into the organization or built into the system in some way. And so it was about the design of the program as much as it was uh, uh, the management. Um, the other thing that I noticed about these errors, these errors um, in trying to achieve good outcomes, again, errors in decision-making of some type, is that they didn't vary, the things that predicted them in the, in the models that I used weren't that different across who was deemed responsible. In this case, it was in the unemployment insurance program. They have a very detailed auditing system of improper payments. And I could look and see um, who was responsible for the error. And so I expected these to be very different based on who was responsible, whether it was the person applying for uh, improper payment, uh, improper, excuse me, the person applying for unemployment insurance, whether it was the person processing it, or whether it was uh, the pieces on the, the private company that the person had been separated from. And in the work I looked at, it, the, the things predicting those errors weren't that different across these things. So again, this is this idea that there's something about the des decisions about the system of providing unemployment insurance that seems sort of cooked into it. The other piece that I discovered um, in work with Rob Greer is that there are tools that do statistically significantly and substantively uh, help to lower these errors. And we looked at um, information technology tools. And <clears throat> not all of the tools were uh, significant in lowering improper payments, but some of them were. And these were tools that had a uh, piece that uh, used information technology. Um, and so that was a pull away from the work as well. And so these findings, and then I'm going to take a pause and bring in. Uh, uh, Fuji's comments, but these findings um, suggest to me that uh, implementation design is really, really important. Uh, the design falls trickle down throughout the organization, um, and um, the decisions made by people about how to uh, design those systems make them sort of into those systems. And we also know that if we, within the organization, even from the bad structure, replace um, human auditing with information technology auditing of some broad degree to help catch these errors, um, it helps. We don't know exactly the mechanism behind that, but that these tools can be helpful. All right. And so the first, uh, I'm going to throw up Fuji's first comment here. Let's see. Um, uh, let's see. This is the second one, actually. It seems like there is a natural tension between a system that is designed to provide benefits to the most recipients and one designed to minimize errors. Uh, I think that's exactly right, um, Fuji. I think there's an inherent tension there. And this sort of is alludes to some of the things that I'm going to talk about later with clearly identifying the goals of an organization in ways that um, minimize those tensions so that we're clearly defining what we want an organization to do or some institution and then it does just that and that the most efficiently way possible. But to your point, when you have mixed goals or tensions across your goals, that's certainly going to cause some problems. Second uh, comment from Fuji here was, one of my favorite quotes from grad school, correlation is not causation. 
It amazes at me how many times this, uh, this concept is evident as you read things in the press from think tanks and in academic journals. Um, that's exactly right, uh, Fuji. Um, we've talked about this in some of the statistics stuff uh, that we've talked about together. Um, correlation is certainly not causation, can certainly also be informative, um, but we need to be really rigorous with our understanding of why those things are related and controlling for lots of the things that might also explain that correlation, um, which harkens a little back to some of the conversation with Nathan um, next week. So thanks for bringing, or last week, excuse me. So thanks for bringing that up again, um, Fujin. Kung Chao has a comment here, which is, I want to know how did you define error exactly? I guess it would be um, like, a, like a distraction from standards. However, standards are not appropriate to simply follow when situation and condition changes. So I want to know how did you deal with the matter such as changes of the standard itself? It's a really good question. It's one that I get um, pretty much every time I talk about this research, Chung Chao. Um, the answer is that I let the auditors decide. And so with the de uh, these federal agencies are required to do in-depth, uh, statistically uh, rigorous audits of their claims to, to individuals. And um, as, the, as part of that, they, they make decisions about whether or not each claim was followed the way that it was supposed to. Um, and so I followed their interpretation of whether the rules were followed appropriately when those cases were audited. So that was how I defined it um, across the improper payments. Another sip of water. Okay, so in continuing this conversation, we, we gave a little bit of context for how I think about administration and the what and the how question. Another piece of this puzzle is that we don't always know things with complete certainty. And so, um, um, for example, when you flip a coin, we know there's a 50% chance that it lands on heads and there's a 50% chance that it lands on tails. And so in advance of flipping that coin, we do not know what the outcome is going to be. We know what the likelihood of the outcomes are. But we don't know for sure. All right. And when making decisions within organizations in particular, so we're thinking now, talked about the systems level, more now at the individual decision maker, um, people and managers and people designing systems often have to make decisions. Well, first of all, they often have to make decisions with often very little to no good quality information. But often they have two choices that um, that they can choose between or a current state and some different state. And they know with rough probability what might happen if that choice is picked. So, for example, there might be an 80% chance of saving a total of a, a billion dollars in improper payments or a 20% chance of it failing and costing taxpayers $250 million. We don't know for certain when we craft a policy uh, and have choices what the with complete certainty what the outcome is going to be. All right, and so what I'm going to call that uncertainty there is risk. And risk um, is defined in a sort of a particular way. And in a, in a recent, uh, some recently accepted work I have with Rob Greer and Larry O'Toole, um, uh, forthcoming in the New Journal Public Perspectives, uh, excuse me, pers per Perspectives on Public Management and Governance, um, is uh, we, we sort of try to identify risk within some of the classic traditions of how psychologists and uh, risk analysts think about it. And keep it as broad, and keep but keep it as broad as possible at the same time. Um, and we say risk in the context of the individual decision maker uh, within public organizations specifically is determined by the known or estimated probability of an event occurring and the resulting consequences. And so here is the idea um, that uh, again that you have choices and the the likelihood of the outcomes associated with them, we don't know for sure, um, but have some estimated probability and some amount of harm or amount of good that will come from that decision, all right? And um, so 
it turns out that one thing we've learned from psychologists and behavioral economists um, and those that study decision making is that under conditions of risk, um, humans um, don't often make optimal decisions. They don't do a great job always of moving towards the achieved goal. Okay, and we do this in some systematically biased ways. And we're not going to go into the details tonight, um, but there's a lot of literature on the fact, for example, that people tend to be very loss averse. And so once they have something, they are very um, averse. They very much do not want to lose it. And that people value losing things twice, uh, about twice as much as they do gains. All right. And so there are a lot of these things these um, decision-making biases, these cognitive biases, where people use heuristics to make decisions and it leads to suboptimal um, decision-making. All right, I'm gonna bring um, a comment in from Fuji again here, which says that I think you just made a case for putting program eval measures in the front side of a program while it is being developed and before it is being implemented. Uh, yes, um, and I, one of the things that Nathan and I talked about last week when thinking about how to gather evidence to make good policy was to try things out at a small level, rigorously test them, get some good feedback, and um, know at the beginning before you implement a large-scale program what the likely outcomes are. Um, that would be wonderful if we could do much more of that. Um, so it turns out that Maybe um, humans aren't always so good at designing and creating complex administ administrative structures. Sometimes they are, sometimes not. Um, as uh, I would argue is highlighted by the variance across, uh, for example, one thing, improper payments across these programs. But um, we know that sometimes systems are designed uh, poorly by uh, those people that design them. And we also know that across individual choices um, that have probabilistic outcomes where we don't know the outcome for sure, that people also uh, make suboptimal um, decisions often. Mentioned biases, mentioned cognitive biases. Um, it's also, um, we also know that people are biased um, in ways that are ethically really concerning. Um, uh, for example, things like uh, sexism and racism and uh, pay gaps and disparities in outcomes in the judicial system um, that are race related. Um, and so we know that decision makers in these spheres um, often make biased decisions that are quite harmful and um, unethical. And so as I thought about errors, I've thought about how humans make decisions, I've thought about motivation, um, it's, uh, it seems to me that, um, one final time that humans don't do this particularly well. And so what is it that, what is the thing that we can't do particularly well that's limiting us in that way? All right. So keep that in mind and I'll, I'll come back to that when we talk about the ways in which artificial intelligence, for example, might help us improve that decision-making and in some capacities um, already has surpassed human ability to solve these types of problems, but the ways in which it might continue to do that uh, better than humans in other arenas as well. So as I've started talking some about artificial intelligence, I've noticed that people respond to me in funny ways. Um, and I think it's because artificial intelligence means a lot of different things to different people. Um, sometimes it means like killer robots. Sometimes it means like the singularity. Um, and sometimes it means like uh, some super intelligent being that's going to take over the world. So you get a range of responses when you mention artificial intelligence. So what I'd like to do is just give you some terms um, not terms that I've come up with, terms that uh, come from the uh, Max Tegmark, um, 
who recently released a book called Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, where he lays out some of these terms, I think, quite well for someone who's trying to uh, get familiar with these concepts. And so I'm going to pull directly from his definitions um, from his book. Uh, I'm going to define a few terms and then see if we can piece together the ways in which this sounds a lot like what we've been describing with administration. So in this book, um, Tegmark provides a little um, cheat sheet of definitions. And so that's where these are pulled from in the book. You can, again, see them there. Complete credit to him. Um, The first uh, piece that I think is useful to think about is intelligence before we move to the artificial piece of it. And so intelligence uh, Techmark takes a pretty broad stroke in trying to define it as broadly as possible. And this is not agreed on by all people who think about artificial intelligence or people who think about intelligence. Um, but I find it useful. And that definition is the ability to accomplish complex goals. All right. So intelligence and the cons- and the way in which I'm going to be talking about it tonight is the ability to accomplish complex goals. All right. The second piece of this that I think is useful is to define artificial intelligence, right? And so artificial intelligence, again, trying to define it broadly, but not so broadly that we lose the some notion of a construct here. So artificial intelligence is non-biological intelligence. So it's something, uh, some, something that is non-biological that is accomplishing complex goals. All right, and then let me just give you three more terms here. Narrow intelligence, which is the ability to accomplish a narrow set set of tasks. Intelligence, which is the ability to accomplish accomplish any goal, essentially, including learning. And then artificial general intelligence, which is the ability to accomplish any cognitive task, at least as well as humans, right? And so these are the terms, some of the terms that Tegmark lays out. So to give you just a, a basic understanding of where I'm going with these terms. Now, remember the first one, intelligence is ability to accomplish complex goals. We talked about tonight how one useful way of thinking about public problems is to identify goals and aims and then how to most effectively, and to think about how to most effectively achieve those goals and aims, right? And that's the administration. That's the that's the how part, all right? The definition here of intelligence sounds pretty similar. The ability to accomplish goals, uh, complex goals. And so it's the ability to do that, the ability to do the how, right? So how do how do we efficiently solve complex goals? All right, what's the what's the underlying what's an underlying process we might think about that describes how people um, and how we how we go about solving the uh, figuring out how to accomplish a complex goal? Right. So we might start with identifying some goal, the goal that we're trying to attain and then trying to find the right mix and level of factors or variables that most efficiently, that most uh, most quickly, most efficiently, most uh, least use of resources obtain that goal, all right? And so we identify some goal we're trying to achieve. Let's pick a big one. Let's say solving poverty, right? And then what we might do is think about all the things that contribute to poverty um, and um, how we might adjust those things so that by having those factors be different, we lower poverty, right? And when notions of risk are at stake, like we were talking about, we are not sure how well every piece of this is going to play out in every situation. We, uh, we weight those things. We, we um, kind of, discount them, we uh, adjust them by how likely they are, all right? So we think about some goal, we think about the factors that we need to have in consideration to get to that goal, and how we might find the best amount of those things so that it helps us get the goal we want, like minimize poverty, 
All right, and this is where our chat on regressions, I think, is helpful. When we are obtaining some goal, we are maximizing or minimizing something um, and trying to find which things are most important to help and make sure we are maximizing or minimizing that thing. Again, think of minimizing poverty or maximizing, uh, you know, big things like, like peace um, or minimizing human suffering, right? For example, so what is the equation? What is the, what are the type, what are all the factors that we can adjust that would help us minimize human suffering? All right. And this is the same thing as what regression does. You are, um, you have something that you are trying to minimize or maximize, and you have a bunch of variables that you think might uh, maximize or minimize that outcome. And the regression gives you the weights, gives you the values of what you need of those things to maximize or minimize some goal, right? Which means that if you could get precise understandings of each of the potential variables and, and define them and um, uh, uh, carefully define them and have all the information on all those variables that you needed, you could, Im you could uh, improve decision-making by learning exactly which variables and which real slight changes in things and which exact things would help you minimize uh, human suffering, for example. You could run millions and millions of different regressions, slightly adjusting each one to see if you can figure out wh wh across all these variables, all the things that affect human suffering, which things help minimize it the most. And it turns out, as I understand it, that this is the, the basic idea behind machine learning and artificial intelligence. You have some basic algorithm, some basic function, and its goal is to maximize something or minimize something. And then it has a lot of data and then repeated tests to see which variables, which things help best maximize the thing that it's supposed to be doing. For example, win at the game of chess or win at Go um, was sort of the big uh, AI breakthrough, right? And so uh, you have some goal, and this is sort of narrow intelligence, which is playing chess. And now artificial intelligence beats humans at that specific goal given these, these, these rules. And there are much more advanced applications of this now. Um, and so a lot of people who are thinking about artificial intelligence are beginning to think about how this might play out in society, right? And the, the, the technological pieces aren't there, but the framework for the, the machine learning is in place, it's demonstrated, it's just a question of how complex can that get and the quality of data. Um, so um, again, theoretically, if we could very carefully define what our goals and aims are, we might in the future be able to use machine learning algorithms or artificial intelligence to give us the most efficient solutions to very complex problems, including things about structure and specific decisions, and even how to tailor those things to specific individuals based on their characteristics, right? Not there yet, but you can imagine in this broad framework that it would be possible. And it's already, we've already, we're already using artificial intelligence to, to solve some of these. The information technology tools that are used to catch things like improper payments are some variant of these things. It's much more narrow. Uh, it, the, the systems are designed um, by coders and um, much the parameters are much more structured. Um, and so there's not this reiterative learning process that comes with machine learning, but it's using information technology tools to automate decisions that humans arguably didn't do as a well of a job solving. And so uh, there's work out mathematically that shows that these things theoretically should be done and we're moving in the direction of being able to do them in um, in practice. Um, there are risks to these. There are risks to using artificial intelligence in ways to help solve the the what, uh, excuse me, to help, uh, help solve the how, the administrative question, the intelligence piece of uh, goal accomplishment. Um, 
You have to worry about bugs in coding. You have to worry about misaligned incentives and goals, the way in which these tools, as if they're uh, pursued more rigorously, could lead to concerns about advanced weaponry and uh, more automation and loss of jobs. But these things are very likely in the way that the, the information age has disrupted um, these things already, particularly weapons and jobs, this is likely coming, as Tegmark and others uh, point out. And so thinking about the ways in which we need to um, be prepared for this and put safe safety regulations and safeguards in place to get the benefits of the artificial intelligence with, while minimizing the risks is going to be a question for administrators um, and scholars um, as the science advances. At a minimum, I think the advances in AI uh, make for interesting questions about how and when it can be used to solve uh, public administrative challenges. When is it better to replace human decision-making with artificial intelligence, given the strengths and weaknesses of both? And this isn't something that we've really wrestled with administratively yet. So that's the spill on um, some of my thoughts about administration and uh, decision-making and risk management and artificial intelligence. I'm just beginning to explore the artificial intelligence pieces. Um, I have a working paper on this. Um, and so I'm, I hope that I was able to explain them in a way that made, uh, made some sense and sort of introduced you um, to thinking about some of these new technological tools that are already allowing us to solve uh, problems in our day-to-day -day life and that as they ramp up in their capacities, um, have the potential to help us solve lots of administrative problems, but also come with their own unique sets of problems that we need to be thinking about. I hope, I hope you've enjoyed this course. Um, we've really begun uh, a discussion here, I think, in the space of how to think about public problems, um, some of our current public problems, and some of the tools for addressing some of those as we've talked throughout the five weeks we've been together. Um, we're going to do this again in July. To, for anyone who's interested, we'll have a registration. We'll have Google Classroom again. We'll have a Google Hangout for those things. Um, we'll probably tweak those tools some way. We'll do the Facebook Live discussions. I really, um, really enjoyed interacting with you in this way. Um, and in the meantime, I hope you will check out other public problems platform. The Again, the podcast season two is going live soon. Going to be doing these discussions on management and governance that will be uh, streamed uh, on our page as well. Um, so there's lots of things going on. I hope you'll check it out. And again, if you um, have enjoyed this course, um, these videos or the podcast, you think they're useful, you think um, the information that they're that pushing out here is helpful, um, you can support these efforts um, financially at justinbullock.org slash subscribe, where you can make a one-time donation or a monthly recurring donation. Um, it looks like I have... Uh, uh, final comment here from, or a, a comment from Kyung Chao Kim. I'll take questions um, now for a couple minutes as well. If any other questions pop up, I'll give you uh, a few minutes to do that. But let me pull up Kyung Chao Kim's uh, comment here, which is, in my studies, machine learning is basically uh, based on using derivative calculation to make optimal results and stand on ultimate, ultimately probability perspective. Um, as we can remind uh, the as we can remember the Herbert Simon's bounded rationality concept, then people uh, are also uh, making decisions ultimately in probability perspective. However, it is much weaker than that of AI. In this case, what could be human's role in decision-making process? Um, I, uh, I think that's the question that I'm really interested in, Kim Chao Kim, which is um, what is the balance of uh, administrators making these decisions and uh, artificial intelligence that can weigh these probabilities and um, taking the probabilities and all the variables into consideration uh, come up with the optimal uh, derivative. Um, so I think it's, I think it's going to be tough to figure out what, if we want to make the best decisions possible in what situation should we let uh, people make the decision and in what, situation should we let um, artificial intelligence make the decision? I think it's going, some of it's going to come down to uh, people's comfort with it. And I think it's going to start with things that can be 
uh, automated and made routine and um, things like um, self-driving cars are, will become more common and more socially acceptable. I think a lot of this is going to depend on the public's willingness to um, for the for governing governing entities to be using these tools. Um, it becomes at some point hard for me to think about which situations when it's in a risk situation and you can clearly define and have inputs for um, for machine learning um, when when humans should make that uh, should make decisions without at least having that piece of information I think it brings up interesting questions about maybe defaults right like um, you could have a default where the answer that the artificial intelligence spit out about say a conviction or um, uh, some claim benefit that that was the default and then if there were issues with it it can be overturned by a human decision maker this is sort of uh, some cases have been looked at with um, traffic um, uh, traffic controls um, that have been doing this for some time where it's the artificial intelligence essentially the computer program makes uh, gathers data makes the decision it sends out the ticket and then the only time people really get involved is when there's an appeals. And so I can imagine the arbitrator role um, being one that's a larger percentage of, of administrator's time. Um, but yeah, I think it's gonna ask some really interesting questions about um, when should AI be making decisions um, that matter and when should humans be making decisions that matter. All right, well, we're getting close on the hour mark. Um, this was a fun way to conclude. Um, thanks so much to all of you that asked questions, that took time out of your Wednesday nights um, to come and watch this live broadcast. And um, it's been, again, it's been a lot of fun. Looking forward to doing it again in July, and I hope you will join us for our other Facebook live discussions. Check out, uh, check us out on our Facebook page at Public uh, Problems Podcast and our YouTube channel. Um, and uh, thanks again for your time. Have a wonderful night.